Um, but other sea stars, especially if they've got something that's a little too large, their stomach will come out and grab the food item and digestion will actually start outside the body before it comes back inside. I know it's a little horrifying. <laughs> This episode is brought to you in part by our sponsor, Tidal Influence, a Californian ecological consulting firm who proudly supports environmental education and all of the diverse conservation efforts that Pelicanus works to highlight. Visit their website at tidalinfluence.com to learn more about what they do to conserve our coastal resources and how you can get involved. This podcast is sponsored by Project Dragonfly a master's degree program offered by Miami University dedicated to ecological and social change. Project Dragonfly offers a part-time master's of arts in biology degree focused on conservation or a master's of arts in teaching for teachers. The program is designed for working professionals and can be completed from anywhere in the United States. Learn more at projectdragonfly.miamioh.edu. On this episode of Conservation Conversations, we talk with Jennifer Burney of the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach, California about sea stars. Jen shares all of her stories of working on restoring a long imperiled species of sea star on the California coastline and much, much more. Enjoy our conversation with Jen. Jen, thank you so much for joining us. If you don't mind, please introduce yourself. Uh, tell us, tell us uh, who you are and what you do. Yeah, I'm Jen Burney. I am one of the senior aquarists at Aquarium of the Pacific, and I mostly work in culturing, so creating life at the aquarium. And my primary focus is on invertebrates like jellies. I do a lot of like warm water jellies and then cold water stuff, uh, mostly echinoderms, so sea cucumbers, sea stars, sea urchins, stuff like that. All right. I like the, uh, you said you, you, create life <laughs> that should be on your business right? card yeah. life creator i'm just gonna leave it a mystery and not clarify anything <laughs> uh, perfect um so you said uh culturing um can you kind of just get into what that what that means you know i can i think of like cold when i think of culture i think of like a petri dish with like bacteria but what does I that mean, actually it's, mean it's semi-similar um with aquariums kind of the big major effort right now is to do a lot of aquaculture in-house. Anything we can create here really cuts down on like transporting animals and using fuel to do that or having to go collect from the wild or, you know, stuff like that. We'd like to limit that as much as possible. So if I can make animals here, that kind of solves that issue. So normally what we'll do is we'll just look out for behaviors in fish or invertebrates that indicate they would like to spawn. And once they do, I'll harvest all of that and basically fertilize eggs if that's the animal I'm working with, and then just kind of let them develop from whatever their larval stage is until they're essentially adults and ready to go back to exhibit. So I'm seeing it from like the very beginning when the egg is fertilized all the way up till you're on exhibit now. I think I mentioned to you when we were there the just the, the world of invertebrates just does not make any sense to me. Uh, it's, it's, it's just so crazy. And I remember you're like, Oh, here, let's look at this, this little, you know, cup I have of like these, you know, baby, I can't remember what there's stars or something. And I was just like, I'm just, I have my camera on it. And I was like, it just looks like water. Oh <laughs> like yeah. It just looks like, like I'm making it up, but <laughs> I swear there's stuff in my tanks. You just can't <laughs> see them most of the time. But yeah, in invertebrates are so different from people that I think, the average person has a hard time connecting with them. 
But now that, you know, we're doing more research with invertebrates and people realize how fascinating they are, I think we're getting a lot more interest their way. You said you work with echinoderms and you're breeding them and you're trying to uh, grow them and create life for them. Can you talk a bit about your program there and, you know, what you're doing and why you're doing it? Yeah. So the reason I'm mostly focusing on echinoderms is because we are part of a group called the Sunflower Sea Star Recovery Working Group. They're a pretty cool animal. Um, they have a really interesting story that not a lot of people know about. They used to be pretty abundant along our coast and then all the way up through Alaska. And unfortunately, they were hit with a really bad sea star disease called sea star wasting disease. 99% of the population of those stars from California up to Washington, and we lost in the higher 80% of them up in Alaska. So really horrible losses for this star in particular, among other stars. And the thing with doing like conservation projects, uh, a lot of people like furry stuff, stuff with faces, stuff they can kind of connect to. So getting people to care about invertebrates can be a little bit more challenging. Um, so what the Precopodia Recovery Working Group has done has kind of sounded the alarm that, hey, we lost a lot of these stars, and now we know that they actually play a really vital role in kelp forest ecosystems. These guys are ravenous predators, especially of sea urchins. And I'm sure you've heard of an urchin baron before, um, but what happened after we lost all these numbers of stars is urchins didn't have as many predators to deal with, and their numbers just exploded. And that can be okay up to a point, but we've gotten to the point now where because there's so many urchins out there, they're overeating the kelp, and we're just seeing this cascading effect of losing this animal. So this is something we call a keystone species. The loss of it has really affected its entire ecosystem, and that's why we're really trying to push to get protections placed on this animal. So now that we are aware this is a huge issue, um, the Sunflower Star Lab, which is up uh, near Monterey Bay Aquarium, they reached out to aquariums and asked if we'd be interested in learning how to culture these sea stars. And the overall long-term goal would be that they get re-released into the wild. But for now, we're on the stage of trying to like perfect our techniques. And the main point of the recovery working group is to try and get aquariums, nonprofits, research labs to participate in actually raising them behind the scenes. So that's kind of what we're working on back here. I've been practicing with other species that are similar. So I've been doing a lot of different species of sea star spawning, trying to get them to grow and uh, get to a juvenile stage that looks healthy. And once I kind of master that, I know that I can actually do that with the Pictopodia. So that's been my, my main goal for the past like year. So it sounds as if the, the, the goal in working with this, the Sunflower Sea Star Working Group that you mentioned is to eventually you'll be able to grow and create the sea, these sunflower sea stars, and you'll be able to eventually then outplant them into the native habitat where they should be, where they were eradicated from. Yeah, that's right. that's the overall goal. Um, we do also need to address the disease situation because if we do outplant, but the disease is still like out there and ravaging sea stars, we're basically just not really accomplishing what we wanted to accomplish. So there's a couple other factors that people are looking into. We're just on the culturing side of things, but that's also a discussion that's being had. And is that the sea star wasting disease? It is. Unfortunately, we don't know a ton about it, which is part of the problem. You can't really fight a disease if you don't know about it. And they're not even sure what kind of disease it is. I've, I've heard it might be a virus, but again, there's just so many questions about it and it's pretty unsteadied. 
So there are people working on that to try and figure out what its origin is and how we could possibly mitigate that. I remember when that crash first happened, um, or at least the most recent time the crash mm -hmm. happened with the wasting disease. Uh, there were some talks with like there were people going back into um, fossil records saying that there may have been there may be a natural up and down, but the way that it crashed was like almost every sea star in the west coast of the U.S. disappeared. There were some small areas, and actually, I think I remember you guys had one of the only closed facilities, right? So you didn't yeah. actually have the wasting disease. Yeah, we got very, very lucky. A lot of other aquariums that have water just pumping straight in from the ocean and going straight through, they saw a lot of sea star wasting disease in their populations inside. And that was pretty devastating for a lot of those aquariums. And we're lucky that ours goes into a reservoir, it gets filtered. It, we've got a little like block between just coming straight from the ocean to us. And that really, really helped us not lose a lot of our population of sea stars. I want to take a quick step back and talk about the sunflower sea star. Mm -hmm. um, it, when I was looking at it, it kind of reminded me of the movie Alien. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, it just it, they just like we, we were talking about with invertebrates, they're just so foreign and so weird. Can you talk a little bit about this species, but also the sea stars in general, like how weird they are? They're the hydrovascular system, their stomachs come out of their body, all those <laughs> kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, they are just completely different from us. We've got blood. Um, that is going through our bodies and that's delivering oxygen to all of our tissues, our organs. Sea stars still need oxygen, but they don't have the same system like we do. So in order to get oxygen to all of their parts, they actually bring in seawater through the water vascular system. So it's like this little like ring and a bunch of little canals that go around their body. And that's going to deliver both nutrients and oxygen to all of their tissues. So that's that's a weird one. <laughs> Um, they also, in terms of digestion, not all stars do the stomach coming out thing. Uh, some of them just swallow whole. That's more of a Pycnopodia thing. They are ravenous predators and can eat very large food items and will just take it into their body. Um, but other sea stars, especially if they've got something that's a little too large, their stomach will come out and grab the food item and digestion will actually start outside the body before it comes back inside. <laughs> I know it's a little horrifying. <laughs> and in terms of just like general organs, everyone always asks us, well, can they see, can they smell, can they hear? And they do have some of those systems in place. They're just so different from what we, like how we function that I think people get confused by it, but they can see light and like darkness. So they can see shadows moving. They have little eye spots on the tips of their arms that allow them to kind of see that motion, but they don't see details and colors or like shapes of things, if that makes sense. And is it a, a feature of all uh, sea stars that they're able to regrow arms? Because I know it takes a long time, but like I know some species are able to, like if they get chomped off, then they can kind of like scurry away. But then, you know, six months later, they've got a new arm. Yeah, and it all depends on where it got chomped. <laughs> so all of them should be able to regenerate, but if their little central disc gets damaged in any way, the sea star normally won't recover and definitely won't regrow. Because um, if you've damaged that central area where some of the vital organs are, they're just, they're not gonna recover from that. If the disc is intact and the rest of the arm just falls off or gets taken off by a predator, that will regrow. And how long it takes really depends on what temperature the sea star is in. 
So if they're a tropical sea star, it's going to grow a lot faster than like a cold water star. And so you mentioned Pycnopodia, and that's the sunflower sea star, correct? Pycnopodia? Yes, yes, it is. Okay. So talk a bit about what makes that species a little bit different, because you said it's a keystone species, um, which just kind of highlights its importance in the, the ecological framing there. But um, talk a bit, a, bit, a bit more about that species, about what makes it different and how it kind of fits in with that trophic food web thing. Oh, yeah. So when most people think of sea stars, they're imagining five of their arms because that is just the typical sea star shape. Pycnopodia have a lot more arms than that. They can have anywhere from about 20 to 25 arms, and it does vary. Um, so that's why they look a little bit more terrifying. It's just arms for days. Uh, and also in terms of their place in the ecosystem, the reason they're so important is because, one, they move very, very fast. You have all of those tube feet like they do, which help them with locomotion. You have all those arms. You can speed. So that means they can eat a lot in an ecosystem. And um, because of that, sea urchins can really like populate an area and start eating the kelp too much, which is what has happened in the absence of them. Uh, so when they are there, they're able to just wipe out sea urchins in a little local area. And it sounds like a sad thing, but it's actually keeping the ecosystem in balance and not letting the urchins outgrow everything else. Um, you mentioned uh, near the beginning, you said you worked with uh, different echinoderms and some other species. Can you um, can you talk a bit about some of the other work you do for jellies and, and uh, uh, oh, what are the Cucumbers, sea cucumbers is what I'm thinking of. Did you, did you, yeah, you mentioned sea cucumbers, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, basically, the most of the other stuff I'm working on isn't directly related, related to a conservation project like the sea stars, sea urchins. Usually, the other stuff I'm working on is related to exhibitry. So the whole point is to eventually get them to exhibit so that we can repopulate all of our exhibits without having to collect or do any of that stuff. So when I'm working with jellies, it's really just to repopulate our current stock. Um, I think right now, 100% of our jellies that we display, which is normally anywhere from 10 to 15 species, have been made in-house. So we're super proud of our jelly program. And the more animals you produce, if you reach a max where you can't keep them here anymore, we're able to provide them to other aquariums who then also don't have to go collect them or get them somewhere. So it's really an important part of sustainability within aquariums is having a robust aquaculture program. And we're super lucky here that we're doing jellies, we're doing cephalopods, and I'm getting to do a lot of invertebrates and also fish for our exhibits. Again, in the world of invertebrates, so I love the jellies. And because just imagine that like, it's just this, if you were to pull it out of the water, it would just be this like gelatinous mess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and the fact that it has, I don't want to say it has sentience, but there is something that it knows what it's doing. And there are certain, um, I know there's certain species in like Australia that are, they actually hunt, right? The tinafores, the, the, the box jellies, aren't, aren't they hunting yeah. jellyfish? So the fact oh, that they're yeah, able it's... to do that while just being this like gelatinous mess is so cool. Yeah, I think it's hard for people to understand the thought because we have, you know, a brain. We have this central thing that kind of guides everything we do and helps us process the information we're getting from the environment. 
every invertebrate is sensing the environment. The only difference is that they're not processing it in the same way. So jellies, uh, sea stars, all of them, they can feel water motion. They can feel vibrations from other animals or things nearby. They can sense when a predator is coming or when food is around. The way they process it is just different. It's not like, oh, this is my favorite meal. Instead, it's I'm going to eat that, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's how Taylor thinks about his food, too. <laughs> He's just like, if there's food in front of me, I'll, I'll put it it's, in. It's I'll coming in. It out. <laughs> I agree with you, Austin. Is like talking about inverts. Um, and it, they are so foreign to us. And it, it's the constant thing for me. I was just watching the uh, bees pollinate the uh, citrus tree out in our yard. And I was just like, you know, trying to understand how they're working and all that. And I, I went to exactly the same place. Like, they're so weird. But I was like, wait a second. We're the weird ones. You oh, know, yeah. like there's so many more inverts around the world and in so many different capacities and so many different niches. And it's like, wait a second. That's the norm <laughs> or f f much more the norm than, uh, you know, these bipeds walking around. Yeah, we just like plop out as babies and we do grow. It's not that we don't change over time, but with invertebrates, they have all these complex life stages. So when they actually, when an egg is fertilized and it starts developing, it doesn't just plop on the ground and become a sea star. That's not how invertebrates work. Most animals in the ocean have some type of planktonic like larval stage where they're just drifting in currents and hoping a whale doesn't eat them. And sea stars are no different. They metamorphize over time until they eventually become a sea star. But they have all these different life stages where it's not just they're growing, it's they're actually changing shape, they're growing limbs that weren't there before. So it's just something that's hard for people to imagine because we're so different. Well, I, and I love, you know, you mentioned, you started mentioning uh, ecosystems of the various uh, sea stars. Um, and if you just want to talk about the sunflower star or any star, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about their ecology. Uh, what, what, where do they live out in the wild? What does it look like for them? What are their predators? What kinds of things are they, are they hunting for? Um, and then also, if you don't mind telling us a little bit about how you've recreated a, a semblance of that in the aquarium, because I know that the touch tanks uh, are always... Uh, a fan favorite. Uh, everyone's got and the lines, the lines at the aquarium for folks to touch the sea stars. Um, I was just hoping that you could share a little bit about, about that. The cool thing about sea stars is they're found in pretty much almost every environment in terms of saltwater. We don't find them in freshwater. They don't exist there, but you can find them in shallow tropical waters that are super warm. They can be in very Arctic cold waters like the Pycnopodia are, and they can be either deep or shallow. You've got some stars that live in the abyss and that we've only really seen because of work with ROVs going down there and filming them. So in terms of habitat, you're going to find them everywhere. A lot of them in Southern California, at least, are associated with tide pools. So that's why people find them all the time in these little rocky pools that when the tide goes out and is super low, they're just trapped in these little like ecosystems of their own until the tide comes back in again. But they stick around that shallow area because that's where the food's available and that's where they have a bit of protection from larger predators. In terms of like who eats sea stars, uh, honestly, other sea stars. 
They are, uh, they can be quite cannibalistic, even amongst the same species. We've discovered that with raising the Pycnopodia, they will eat each other. And that is just kind of the circle of life when it comes to invertebrates. There's no rules about <laughs> etiquette and you can eat each other if that's what you want to do to grow. So the major predator of sea stars, I would say, is other sea stars. <laughs> you do have some fish, depending on the environment, that will pick at them, especially crown of thorns. There's like wrasse that like to pick at them, especially large ones. But for the most part, fish leave sea stars alone, and it's other invertebrates you have to worry about. Um, for what they eat, a lot of them like to eat things like bivalves, so mussels, clams, oysters. Their little tube feet are quite strong, like a lot stronger than people think they are, and they're able to crack open things if they need to in order to like get the meat out of a bivalve. Um, and then any other bottom-dwelling organism. Sea stars aren't like launching themselves into the ocean and swimming around to catch fish. That's not how they operate and they don't move that way. So if you think about what they're going to eat, it's whatever available that they can catch on the bottom, on the seafloor, in the tide pools. So anything that lives on the bottom is fair game for sea stars. So in order to kind of replicate a natural environment, that's the sort of thing we keep in mind before we build exhibits, is how can we make this as close to their wild habitat as possible? And it, the same goes with food. We're super lucky here because there's a, a big abundance of seafood here. So we're able to supply them with a wide range of things. It's pretty important to keep food diverse for animals because different food has different nutrients. And we don't want anybody to be missing out on something. So we really try to diversify the diet from day to day. Um, and then for in terms of touch tanks, it does get a little bit harder because you you want to replicate the environment, but it also has to be accessible for guests. And one way we kind of get around the sea stars just being like trapped in this one environment is we actually rotate them around. So most of the animals in our touch tank with the invertebrates have a separate tank in the back where they can go get rest while we put other ones on for touching. And that way they're not staying in the same environment all the time and can get a break from all of the guests. People ask us all the time if people eat them. Uh, technically, Yes, there are places in the world that will eat sea stars. It's not really a problem for their population because it's in a low enough amount that it's pretty sustainable. Um, but the thing that I find all the time, and I see it in stores, especially along the coast, is people dry them out for jewelry and like home decoration. So the big thing I try to tell people is, A, if you see a live sea star, try not to pick it up. Um, if you pick it up, you could like hurt their tube feet because they're like, really stuck to rocks and you might actually rip one and we've got sunscreen and all kinds of oils and stuff on our skin that might get on them and be an irritant or cause other issues for them so i just tell people wild sea stars look try not to touch please and definitely don't pick up and then if you see sea stars that are obviously expired in like a gift shop try your best not to support that kind of a thing if you can so so what is it that got you uh, into this field? Did you always want to work with sea stars? Was this something that you grew up wanting to do? Or did, did you kind of just, uh, you know, work your way into it? Um, I definitely wanted to be a marine biologist since I was very little. It's, I mean, this is the cheesiest answer, but I watched Steve Irwin and was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And that's, yeah, that's where I got my love for animals from. And I really, really loved wildlife um, and especially ocean stuff. I was obsessed with sharks for a really long time. And I've been very lucky that I've gotten to work with them. 
Uh, the nice thing about this industry is you can change what you're working on dependent on like what's available. So if I decided tomorrow, I hate sea stars now, I'm really tired of working with them. It's nice because then I could just switch and work on something else. I could go back to doing like shark stuff or ray stuff. And it's nice because it gives you this opportunity to learn and grow passionate about a lot of different things. So prior to about like a year and a half ago, I had done zero invertebrate culturing. That was not something I was doing. I was doing primarily like fish or I would do jelly work, but that was just for like jelly stuff, no other invertebrates. And so when it came about that, we kind of wanted to be a part of this sunflower star project. I just kind of started working on invertebrates and kind of fell in love with how different and weird they are and kind of all their cool life stages and how you can culture them. So in this field, if you allow yourself to be open to change, you can find out that you're super passionate about something you never knew you would be. And so I've been super lucky in that regard that I've kind of become passionate about a lot of different things just because I've had a lot of opportunities to do it. You know, when I was there uh, with visiting all you guys, I, I noticed there's the, the work culture that you guys have seemed amazing. You guys all really like work together. You all, I mean, from what I could tell, you all really like each other and you're all like working together, but also the programmatic um, connections is, you know, we have people working on otters to Pycnopodia to white abalone, to kelp, to everything that all kind of comes together to all basically bring back the coastal habitat, uh, um, intertidal and subtitle habitat. You know, as awesome as that is, like that, that's got to be like knowing that your work, you know, if you're just head head down in, in a tank every day, you know, trying to grow grow uh, sea stars and things like that, it you have to have this really great feeling i would assume have this great feeling of being part of something bigger and that kind of would to me that gives me would give me hope and optimism about hey we're all working in this together so please talk about that feeling oh yeah it's i mean it's really nice for us because we are all part of like little teams where we do have to work together on a lot of things but then we also do have our independent projects like you talked about so i think that's why it fosters such a team environment we get enough time to work on our own things that we don't drive each other crazy but we do enough teamwork stuff that we end up feeling like we all love each other and it's good but um in terms of feeling that hopeful feeling i would say it's interesting not to go into the negative, but I think it's a lot more 50-50 than people realize. It's like 50%, you're very passionate, you love it, you love the animals, you feel like you're contributing to this big thing that's a really major like difference in the world. And on the flip side of that, you also know about all of the bad things going on, especially with our ocean and all of our wildlife right now. So it's like the more you dive into this field, the more you learn. And that is both a good and a bad thing. So you kind of have to make sure you get enough of that positivity and hope in your days that you're not sort of succumbing to the doom and gloom that comes with climate change and all of those things. Well, uh, related to all that... Um... I, we have, you know, Austin and I both have a lot of colleagues and friends that work in zoos and aquaria and uh, do this kind of work. And I was, I was talking to a friend who's not in the conservation realm at all. And they were like, man, you know, that was always the job I wanted when I was a kid. And I, I it, you know, I made different decisions in life, but I've always wanted to do that. And I, the response that I had kind of came out of nowhere. Um, and I, I want to get your sense if this is true. Um, and I said, you know, from all of my experience with, you know, friends and colleagues that are uh, in this field, it's both 
way better and way worse than you imagine it being <laughs> that job. And the way better part is, you know, it's way cool working with all these animals and getting to do all this. And then the way better part is part of that doom and gloom and the challenge. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's extremely personally fulfilling just because a lot of us here, are, we want to do conservation or research or a little bit of both. So if you ever have the opportunity to kind of hop on a project like this, it, it makes it so you just like want to come to work every day and you're super excited. But there is also that negative part that a lot of people don't know, which is it's a very emotionally and physically taxing career field. And so you just have to find a balance between those things. And it can it can be hard. It's the same as any job, though, trying to find like a work life balance. And you really have to do that here because it's so emotionally and physically draining uh, to do this kind of work every day. But I did. I mean, I thought it was interesting. Just a quick comment. Your friend saying, you know, they didn't get to do conservation work and that's what they wanted to do. I do want to clarify, you know, we can have people working on projects all day long. But if the majority of people are in the indifference crowd where it's like, well, they're just existing outside of this space and not, you know, doing things in their own lives to contribute, we're not really going to be the ones to make the difference. The people who are going to make a difference for our environment are actually the people in that group, the average person who is just existing outside of the conservation field. So I feel like everyone really can participate. You just won't be doing the like hands-on stuff in a lab or like in an aquarium, but that doesn't mean you're not part of the conversation. All right. Well, Jen, thank you so much for your time. Like that was so cool to learn about the sea stars and everything you do. Like we're, we're, we're blown away by the, the complexity of what you do and, and it's just so cool to see. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Jen for taking the time to talk with us about everything the Aquarium of the Pacific is doing to help the Sunflower Sea Star and so much more. Please either visit the Aquarium of the Pacific when you're in town or consider donating to help them recover local wildlife and habitats. Visit them at aquariumofpacific.org to see how you can help. Hosts and producers are Austin and Taylor Parker. Producer is Madeline Walden. Music was provided by a Picture Book Studios. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe if you want to help. Thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.